Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Kai Wortmann, working in philosophy of education at the University of Tübingen, Germany. And I'm here today with Kathleen Fitzpatrick, who is professor of English and director of digital humanities at Michigan State University. We want to talk about her new book, Generous Thinking, a Radical Approach to Saving the University. In this book, Kathleen focuses on the need of thinking generously in the university. And that was a really, really stimulating read. So I'm very happy to have the author here. Kathleen, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you so much. I'm very glad to be here. Before talking about the book, can you maybe start off by saying a little bit about your background and what brought you into questions around the university or indeed rethinking the university? Absolutely. Um, so my, my background was in a fairly conventional English department. Um, I went to graduate school and got my PhD expecting to become a, a professor of literature and to focus on, on writing about literature. But um, I, as my career went on, you know, I, I was highly successful. I found a really great first job at a small liberal arts college um, on the West Coast of the United States. And then moved from there to um, work for the Modern Language Association, where I worked on questions of, of the future of scholarly communication and how the profession should change to think about the ways that new technologies were affecting the ways that we work together. And as my, my career began to shift and change, I started recognizing that many of the, the things that I had thought were idiosyncratic problems at my own institutions turned out to be larger problems that were facing, that the entire academy in the United States was facing, that institutions around the world were also facing. And that had a lot to do with um, the ways that higher education had come to be understood as, as a, a private benefit. Um, rather than a, a shared social good that all should have access to. And the, the more that I began to see, both as a faculty member 
And then from the perspective of a very large scholarly society in the humanities, the effects that this was having, not just on on the ways that scholars communicated their work to one another, but also on the ways that institutions were um, having to defend themselves from the publics that they serve rather than working in collaboration with those publics. I, I just began to realize that something needed to change. And so began looking a bit more deeply into some of these questions. And um, I'm, I'm really glad to say that, that generous thinking was the result of that work. Something has needed to change. Um, and uh, this was also the impression I uh, got when I read the, the opening of, of your book, which is a very... To me, personally, a very moving anecdote. Can I ask you to tell this anecdote to our listeners? Absolutely. Um, so I, I found myself um, many years ago, this was while I was a faculty member at that small liberal arts college, but I was also um, that had a graduate school associated with it. And I was teaching an um, introduction to cultural theory course in a graduate program at that institution. And um, we had this one, one meeting of the seminar, and I don't remember what it was we had read for that particular meeting of the seminar, but we came into the room, and I started asking um, the students who were assembled there for their initial responses to, those, um, to the readings that we had done. And one after another, the first three students who spoke issued absolutely withering takedowns of what they had read, um, uh, you know, takedowns of the ideological blind spots of the articles um, that, that were under consideration, um, questions about the methodology, questions about um, the, the area of focus. And I finally kind of paused and said, okay, you know, I think you were raising some really important questions about this work, and I, I do want to dig into all of this, um, but I want to back up a few steps and start, you know, from a slightly different place. What is the argument that this author is trying to make? What, what is this text ultimately about, and what is the purpose um, of what the author has given us here? And there was this long silence and everybody kind of looked away from me. And I thought, oh my gosh, was that a stupid question? What, you know, does everybody now think that I am just as ideologically complicit as they think this author was? And it gradually dawned on me that the, the question wasn't stupid. Um, it was unfamiliar. And our, our students weren't prepared to engage directly and in a positive fashion with what the text was actually saying and what its value was. They had been trained for years to leap to the critical and to leap to the negative and to find the holes in the blind spots. Um, because that is how in the academy we, we declare ourselves to be smart, how we demonstrate ourselves to be smart. Um, and it was that was one of several moments of recognition along the way to this project that made me realize that something something has gone terribly wrong in the ways that we approach critical thinking in the academy and that we really do need to sort of step back and encourage ourselves to begin from a place of greater generosity in our engagements with the work that we do with one another and um, with the academy at large. So you uh, kind of distinguish between 
three concepts. Um, uh, two of them you already mentioned, uh, critical and generous, but you also throw in the competitive Absolutely. as a third uh, pole. Maybe you can explain What do you mean by these three concepts? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, a lot of people, when they hear me talking about generous thinking, immediately assume that I have, that I am opposing it to critical thinking, right? That, that, that generous thinking is nice, um, that generous thinking accepts what's being said, um, and that generous thinking is um, meant to work toward a kind of easy consensus, We're feel good thinking. Exactly, exactly. Everyone is super happy right. and uh, is not negative about each other. Right. Um, and and that that is understood as being opposed to critical thinking in which we, we um, really consider from a critical perspective the positives and negatives and we think in, in a fashion that's designed to move us toward a better appreciation and a better knowledge um, of the subject under discussion. And my, my real argument is not that the, the opposite of generous thinking is critical thinking. In fact, I think that real critical thinking always has generosity underneath it, or it should at least, because critical thinking should begin from that place in which we really listen deeply to what's being said before we jump forward to everything that's wrong with what's being said. The, the the opposite, the true opposite of generous thinking, as I argue in the book, is competitive thinking. And that's the mode in which we've determined that in order for our own perspective to stand out, in order for you know it to be seen that we have the better idea or the better argument to make, we have to tear down the work that's come before. And we have to jump to those blind spots and those negative elements And that mode of thinking, I, I really firmly believe, is driven by the kinds of individualist-oriented reward structures that the Academy has, has fostered in particularly the last 50 years. Um, but you know, over the course of its history, it's always been there as a certain um, undertone to the work that we do. This sense that one must demonstrate oneself to be the smartest, um, and that in order to do so, one must distinguish one's work from all of one's competitors, and um, and, and demonstrate um, you know my individual contribution to the work. And you know, the the, the misguided nature of that mode of understanding of what we do as a competitive enterprise, um, really, it shows through in, um, sorry, I've lost my train of thought in my sentence just a little bit. Um, it, it has created this, this stress on all of us um, within the academy to constantly be producing more and more and to constantly be in arguments with one another, trying to demonstrate our correctness. And that mode of competition has put us all on a sort of treadmill um, that is, is really um, not good for the work that we're doing, in, in large part because that work is always at its root collaborative and needs to be developed in more generous ways of, of understanding the work as a form of conversation, right? Not as a battle. Um, but it's also been, been um, 
produced in part um, by the, the changing economics of higher education in the last 50 years in the degree to which um, the, the reward structures within the academy have come to really privilege individual accomplishment um, have come to understand those kinds of accomplishments as being um, assess- something that can be assessed through metrics, right? That there are objective criteria through which we can determine who on campus was the most productive and therefore reward those productive faculty with the kinds of benefits that enable them to do their work better. Um, and that mode of competitiveness in which we understand that that resources are um, are tight. There is only so much available um, in terms of salary and um, course release time and other sorts of benefits that can accrue to faculty. Um, and having to compete for those benefits puts us all in this sort of zero-sum game in which it appears that you know, if, if you have a really good idea, if you publish a very powerful argument in a journal, if you um, have a certain kind of success within a, a department or within an institution, it takes away from my potential success. And therefore, you know, you and I are constantly locked in this competition in which we have to outdo one another to demonstrate um, which of us is deserving of the kinds of benefits that are available out there. So, you know, it, it, it seems like a bit of a leap to get from, you know, we all tend to be um, a kind, we all tend toward a sort of knee-jerk competitiveness in our responses to one another's work to um, these larger economic structures that, that the academy is facing today. But I believe that they're, they're directly tied to one another in um, our understanding of where the benefits for doing the work that we do lie. So I'm I'm trying to um, to uh, get a better idea of this uh, triangle of critical, generous, and competitive yes. uh, thinking. Yes. And what I really love, or what I understood uh, from your book, is that you kind of argue for an alliance between critical and generous thinking against the, the competitive one, Absolutely. which you also identify as a highly individualistic uh, thinking and also working culture. Yes. And you stress really the, the uh, collaborative um, aspects of uh, doing research, especially in the humanities. Yes, I think, uh, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, honestly, the more that we can slow down, um, the more that we can really work on building the relationships that those collaborations require, um, the more that we can understand all of the work that we're doing as contributing, not just to our own personal success, but to the success of the field. And of um, our 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 kind of collective project of knowledge sharing, um, the better off we'll all be, and um, the more pleasure that each of us individually will be able to take in the work that we do together. So, my my last question is: You said that uh, real critical thinking is always uh, generous, uh, but would you also say that real generous thinking is always critical? Or is there indeed a, a form of generous thinking that is not 
anti-critical, but maybe non-critical, different the, from critical yeah. thinking. I mean, I do think that there are forms of generous thinking that are different from the critical, um, forms that are about appreciation um, or about um, even love for the work mm -hmm. that's under study. And I think that, that, that those forms of generous thinking um, are the things that tend to get pushed aside in our conventional approaches to critical thinking, in which we think that, you know, if, if you're simply writing from a position of appreciation, you're not saying anything sufficiently important um, about what it is that, that you're writing about, that you need to have this kind of critical take or a, a, an argumentative position in order to say something of substance. I, I believe, or even that it is unscientific. Exactly. It is not real research if it is not critical. Right. And I, I really would love for us to get away from that association of the critical with the serious, right? That you can't be serious somehow um, if you're not being sufficiently critical. So I, would, I, would, I really do want to see within generous thinking a recuperation of some of those forms of, of understanding and engagement um, that, that have gotten pushed aside in our rush to the critical. But at the same time, I do think that there are a lot of ways in which um, the majority of generous thinking is indeed critical. Um, because it's on some level a, a, a position, it's an act of real generosity um, to hold a culture to account and to say that, that we need to be better um, in order to do the best kind of work, whatever that work may, may be, whether it's you know, the study of literature or if it's um, sociological uh, work or if it's, um, if it's in the bench sciences, you know, that, that, that need to make sure that we're doing the work as well as we possibly can. And therefore, you know, taking a critical perspective to that work sometimes can be an act of real generosity. And we see this, for instance, in, um, in peer review, right? Um, peer review is at times a very difficult process because we get a lot of extremely critical feedback on the work that we're doing. And some of that feedback we think is really useful and other parts of it may be more difficult um, for us to process or to understand the value of, but are not so useful at some, all. <laughs> and at times, yeah, it's not so useful at all. Exactly. But, um, but the, the idea that someone has taken the time to read your draft work and to do what they can to help you make it better is an act yeah. of extraordinary generosity. And that I think it's something that is something that we sometimes lose sight of. Um, and I think sometimes reviewers lose sight of that, too. Right. And jump right. to the reviewer to mode of, um, of of dismissing an argument or saying that it's, um, you know, it doesn't quote sufficient amounts of my work and therefore can't be good. Um, we, there are all kinds of problems in peer review, but the fundamental idea that we read one another's work and we help each other make it better is extraordinarily generous. Yeah, I love I love the the book also because of its focus on concrete practices uh, as the example of peer review and you also have a full chapter on on reading together. 
that's the title of the second chapter. Yes. Can you explain why why you think that reading has such a great importance in in the university? I am so glad that you asked this question. You know, I've had so many readers who have said to me, I don't understand what that chapter is doing in this book. Because it's, you know, this is the place where you turn into an English professor instead <laughs> of just someone writing about the academy. Why do I, a chemist, or why do I, a sociologist, care about reading practices on campus? And I honestly believe that that reading of whatever it is we read. I mean, in my case, it happens to be literature. Um, but, you know, in, in the sciences, there is constant reading, not only of the previous literature that's been um, published in the field, but also of the results of, of work that's being done in the lab. Um, that mm. those processes of reading um, are, tell us a lot about what is meaningful to us and about how, how we do the work we do, how we can do that work better, and how we can find ways to communicate to the world around us why we read things the way we do, and also to find out more about how other people who read similar things read them that can put us back into a little bit more um, open conversation, I think, with some of the publics that are not you know, part of the university itself. So in my own sphere, in, in an English department, you know, English professors have very particular methodologies and very particular theoretical perspectives that they bring to reading the literature that they read. And, you know, these are the kinds of things that cause a lot of general interest readers to look at professors and say, oh my goodness, you are reading way too much into this. Um, you are taking all of the fun out of the way that we read novels. You know, this, this is something that we don't understand or appreciate, and therefore we're going to dismiss. And in fact, when you look at general interest readers, many of them have the same kind of passion that we have within English departments for interpreting and discussing and analyzing the, the work that they read and that they care about. But they come at it in different ways, right? They come at it often from that position of appreciation that we have, have dismissed as not being sufficiently serious. Um, but often um, they bring to it a perspective in which there is a connection, an, an important connection between the material that they're reading and the lived world that they exist in, right? That you read something because it can tell you something about the world around you. And that relationship, I think, is something that, that we in the English department could bear to think a little bit more about. Um, as as uh, one essay that I cite within the chapter says, you know, what would it really be if we honestly believed that literature, reading literature could change your life? And what would it be to teach literature if you believed that? And that, I think, um, opening up our reading practices so that others can understand them, but also really finding ways to understand and appreciate the reading practices that others do um, can help us enrich the entire approach that we take to the material that we study. So, you know, my hope in, in reading together is that we might find ways in whatever our field is to get 
general interest readers invested in the kinds of work that we do on campus and to get our work back in dialogue with those general interest readers in ways that can produce a richer environment for the kinds of scholarship that we conduct. So this is, of course, for, uh, very interesting for me also uh, working in the field of education uh, because there, of course, the the relation between theory and practice is, is a constant uh, object of debate. Yes. Um, but uh, what, what I what I what I like about this is that it kind of I, I love this um, uh, Rita Felsky quote of her saying that uh, critique is ordinary. As uh, yes. William said, culture is ordinary, critique is ordinary. Everyone is a critic, uh, and and uh, there are also sociological works, of course, who try to um, really show empirically that this is the case, that we in the academy often feel like having a kind of special methodology or a special access to the work we study, but indeed our modes of in this case, reading or thinking about our objects might not be as uh, different from non-scientific modes of reading or accessing the phenomenon we study uh, than we might think. I think oh, this is not really a question. <laughs> this yeah. is just my my thoughts on, <laughs> on this. But I think I think you're exactly right, and I think that there's a way in which it worries many of us on campus. Um, to really contemplate that idea that, in fact, general interest readers may be just as critical and just as insightful in approaching the work that they read as we are, um, in part because we fear that um, we fear deprofessionalization of the work that we have chosen to do, mm. right? Um, there's a long history across the 19th and 20th centuries of faculty within literature departments in particular attempting to make sure that the work that they were doing and publishing was seen as being sufficiently scientific in order to make sure that um, they were worthy of the privilege that faculty on university campuses have, um, mm. uh, worthy of their positions, worthy of their benefits, worthy of their acclaim, and so forth. And so there was this real struggle to separate university-based um, faculty doing philology, for instance, mm. from more public critics who were understood as writing for wider audiences about um, particular books, you know, book reviewers, and so forth. Right, that there was this real attempt to to create distance between those two, so that the faculty would be seen as being professional, um, mm. and that has created all kinds of repercussions. You know, as we separate ourselves from the the people out in the publics by which we're surrounded who care about the same material that we care mm. about and say that you couldn't possibly understand how serious our work um, is, we, we create the conditions um, for those readers to dismiss us as being irrelevant um, to the ways that they understand the very material that we study. So we really need to get back into dialogue with, with public readers and with public critics in ways that will allow us all to recognize that we're working on the same kinds of 
questions and problems. We have the same kinds of concerns. Um, we, we just come at them differently. University faculty um, create certain kinds of knowledge and also share that knowledge in particular ways with their students, um, with their colleagues, and with, with the broader world. Um, public critics do that same kind of work, but they do it for a different audience. And the more that we can be in dialogue, the more that we can demonstrate the relevance for the culture at large of the work that we're doing on campus. So do you have an idea where this kind of inferiority complex comes from? I always wonder, why <laughs> do we need this. I, I completely see this also in the yeah. social science, uh, sociology, for example, there is a saying that sociology is just very slow journalism. <laughs> so the, 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 the constant fear that maybe I am not that different from others. And this fear is like, has a negative yes. connotation, not a positive one. Where does, why, why do, what do we have this? Oh, boy, I wish I had a really good answer to that question. Okay. <laughs> Because I do think this is exactly the right question to be asking. I mean, I think some of it grows out of um, the, the same things that produce um, imposter syndrome among a lot of graduate students and early career scholars in particular, um, who, who feel like they have been, um, hired into a position or they have been, um, educated into a position that they somehow don't deserve and that somehow, someday everyone's going to figure out that they're a fraud. Right. Yeah. And that kind of insecurity and inferiority is rampant. Um, mm. within the university. It's something, in fact, that I think we kind of, we, we kind of teach one another to take up that position mm. of feeling undeserving and feeling like we're going to be exposed on some level. And I, I have to wonder how connected that is to this sense that, you know, we, we, we have a very good life on campus by and large. We're all working far too hard and we're all, you know, doing far too much. We're all under great amounts of stress. And yet we're taking on that stress in the service of getting to do something that we genuinely love. And in contemporary Western culture in particular, um, the idea that you, you can actually make a living at doing something that you love um, is, is not often terribly well respected, right? I mean, yeah. that, that's not a profession, that's a vocation. And mm -hmm. vocations tend to be um, undersupported and underpaid. And um, so I think there is, there is a fear that um, if, we, if we acknowledge how much you know, we, we genuinely love what we do, and we acknowledge the extraordinary privilege that it is to get to hold the positions that we do and get to do the work that we do, that we're going to wind up um, in a position in which it's the work that we do isn't seen as really being work, mm. right? And therefore won't be paid in the ways that it deserves to be paid. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. 
They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. But what I like is that you in your book constantly point out that this is not to say that, for example, we can think critically or also collaboratively critically about our work environment. It is not to say that because we um, acknowledge this great privilege we have uh, working on something we love, uh, that we cannot prop also problematize uh, the conditions under which we work, Absolutely. which are often very problematic. But uh, it seems to me that in the current culture, in universities, this problematizing uh, talk is very dominant. Yes. And therefore, I, I, I uh, again, I don't come up with a question. I just say why I love your your book so much. <laughs> um, that 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 it offers or it stimulates really to to um, say yes, it's true that often we work under terrible conditions, but also it is not a contradiction to also say we have a great privilege. Uh, Uh, because we can really work on something we admire very much. Yes, I think that's a, a really good way of framing it. Um, and I think, in fact, the, the privilege that we do have to be able to work on the things that we love requires us, I mean, again, in the spirit of generosity, to hold our institutions accountable for ensuring that all of us have, um, have, have a voice in the working conditions that we're, that we are sharing, um, to ensure that, that those conditions are made as, as positive um, as they can possibly be for as many people within um, within higher education as possible. So I think that 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 again, particularly those of us on campus um, who work in positions of the greatest privilege, right? Um, full professors um, in the United States context, those of us who have tenure and therefore have job security, or at least you know relative job security in comparison yeah. with the rest of the culture, um, that we have an obligation to ensure that the working conditions on our campuses are made as beneficial for everyone as possible, and not just to ensure that the privileges of the faculty are shored up and protected, right? So I think that that the one of the great benefits for us of having the kind of work environment that we have um, is this, this requirement that we ensure that our institutions are, 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 are living up to the values that they profess, right? That if our institutions claim to be working in the service of, of the greater good, to be educating the public, to be contributing to the development of shared knowledge and so forth, that it, it's, it's our responsibility on campus to make sure that 
we hold our institutions to account um, and that we ensure that they are, in fact, living up to those promises. You already uh, touched upon the, the question of the relation between the university and the wider public. And uh, indeed, you argue that... Um, Maybe I'm I'm um, overinterpreting now, mm. but but it seems to me that you you kind of argue the more professional a discipline becomes, the less justification it has to be uh, part of the university because the university indeed has the uh, the obligation to engage in the uh, public and in the uh, society and culture. It is. Is that an over overstatement, or <laughs> am um, I, I getting it right? I'm 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 not sure. I'm not sure. I think that's a really interesting statement, and I kind of want to think about it a little bit um, because I do think that there are ways in which um, the purposes of education on university campuses has been pushed by um, by our political and economic situation um, in the West these days to become increasingly professionally oriented, right? Mm. To ensure that a student who comes to university um, to get a bachelor's degree by the time they are done is going to be able to get a well-paying job that makes the investment that they made in getting that degree worth it. Right. So the university becomes, in some sense, um, a, a provider of professional credentials, right, that you, you have come, you have studied, and now you are authorized to go get this job. Um, and that I find highly problematic, um, that, in fact, the university is turning so much of its attention to really focusing on this particular form of professionalization, of making sure that we are creating um, workers who can take on particular roles within the economy um, is, is, is problematic when what our institutions were, were founded for um, was something quite different, right? And what we, what we sort of idealistically aspire to is also quite different. I mean, we understand our institutions from within as being um, engaged in a process of developing and sharing knowledge in a very broad-based way that can enable not just the professionalization of our students, but in fact, that can engage their curiosity and can encourage them to become um, in, uh, engaged in a process of lifelong learning, right? That, ha that gives them a basis um, for becoming um, productive, not just in a material sense, but in a social sense and in even a a personal moral sense, right? Um, which is, is, is a very, very different thing from saying, um, if you come to my institution and you get this degree in chemistry, you will be able to get a job as a chemist. Um, that kind of functionalization of the, the work of the university is a big part of what I think we need to challenge. Um, because the more that we reduce the impact that we have to these direct, personal, individual, sort of pecuniary benefits, right, that you will be able to get a good paying job based on this degree that you get, 
um, the, the more we reduce the impact that we can have on the broader culture and the broader society by bringing, by, by making the work that we do as, as understood as being about a shared public good. Um, so I, I do think that the, the more that we professionalize um, and, you know, professionalize our curriculum, professionalize our instructional processes, professionalize our, our, our priorities on campus, um, the more that we diminish our potential for impact um, on our culture at large. So I, I see your point uh, regarding the professionalization of our students, but I had also uh, in mind the professionalization of our discipline. So the uh, research we do, the discourse that we engage in when we, for example, publish our research. Um, so, uh, and, and, uh, uh, One one thing I really liked and recently read uh, was by by Richard Rorty, who proposed to understand philosophy. That was his discipline in this case, as a as a form of doing cultural politics. Yeah. So the more philosophy becomes a kind of self engaged uh, problem solving uh, puzzle uh, um, discipline. Um, the, the less, of course, relevance it has for the the wider public, and he yes. uh, that proposed to understand philosophy as a kind of um, making propositions how to speak, um, right? In 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 the in the within the um, public discourse about how to um, how to uh, build and make our society better. I, I think that's a really great way of framing it. And I, I, I take your shift of, um, of emphasis here um, much to the point, because I do think that the more that we keep our conversations um, about the work we do and the reasons for that work um, internal, right, the more that we focus on philosophy, as you say, as being an argument between professors of philosophy about how to do philosophy, um, the less relevance it has for the world at large, right? So if you ask um, the majority of people in, in US culture, for sure, um, whether they believe that the work that's being done in philosophy departments has direct relevance for their lives, um, the vast majority of them will say no, um, because it's, you know, it's a bunch of pointy headed professors sitting around, you know, thinking about things that don't matter. Um, and, and really gray seminar rooms exactly, without light. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, but in fact, you know, of all of the fields on our campus, philosophy should be understood as having the most relevance for all of us. Um, if we understand, I mean, as, as you say, Wardy says, um, but also, you know, if we understand philosophy as being fundamentally about how to be in the world um, and how to understand being in the world. Um, then it's something that all of us have to wrestle with. And so really finding ways to take these conversations that we're having out of those gray lightless seminar rooms and have those conversations in more public venues um, and in, in ways that can be appreciated by and engaged with by um, other readers outside the academy, I think makes us, um, it, will, it will help make the relevance of the work that we do on campus so much more clear. 
and and now I have a have a, um, a really an, an honest open question because it is one I struggle with a lot, um, uh, and it is not a necessarily cr critical one. It is just something I I asked myself uh, while reading uh, both your book and also Roti. Um, and I, I thought about a very the very concrete example of Judith Butler's gender trouble, mm -hmm. and it, this was definitely not written for a wide audience it was not for public engagement it was really written for a very very narrow she she tells the story that she had thought that this book would maybe find five or ten readers and and then disappear but instead it it caused a huge social cultural movement almost um so that i i thought that maybe maybe not only Uh, this was an accident and uh, it was a lucky accident but maybe sometimes you you already all, all also need this kind of very very narrow specialized um, research precisely in order to uh, really achieve a kind of I don't know paradigm shift and and really make a, a fundamental, fundamentally different proposal how to speak about, for example, gender. I think that's a really, really great example. I, I really like that example a lot. I'm also thinking right now in the, in the U.S. context about the political backlash that's circulating against critical race theory, um, or at least that's the, the term that our politicians keep using as they're, they're saying that, you know, critical race theory is a dangerous thing and that we shouldn't be um, teaching or supporting this within public institutions. I'm not sure that everyone who's using that phrase knows exactly what they mean, but they've mm. heard it and they understand that there's something in the work that's been done in the legal field and in sociology and in, um, and in critical race studies um, that has begun to have an impact on the ways that that the public understands um, understands racial discrimination and bias, understands the structural relationship between that bias and the world that we live in, and understands how how institutions um, perpetuate racism rather than simply racism being a, a bad quality in individuals. Um, I, I think that that seeing that backlash right now really demonstrates how important those ideas have been to public discourse um, and that it's really changed and, and it's inspired some of the movements like Black Lives Matter um, in ways that that are making people nervous. Um, mm. So I do think that that the more that we recognize that um, that the work that we do has the potential to create these dramatic changes um, and to inspire um, real cultural movements, um, the, the better off we'll be. Yeah, the, the, the problem I, I had with this example was that um, maybe, maybe it shows that you cannot really control what impact you have <laughs> definitely is, definitely I mean, you can you can of course say that oh uh, my aim is to influence the public and i want to be uh, engaged in the community and right. so on and so on but in butler's case it was precisely that she was not 
aiming at this. Right. And, but still, it had this huge impact. So, yes. yes. So I, I came, I came, I became a bit um, uh, skeptical also, also for my very self-understanding as as a researcher working at the university that how 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 much control do i have and how much is it just up to don't know good yeah. chance well i think i mean this is you know roland bart all the way back in the 1960s was arguing uh, for the death of the author for this reason that you know we just don't have control you you publish something and and the world makes of it what they do um it's actually very funny i was just thinking um just as you were talking about judith butler's introduction to the 10th anniversary um Uh, reissue of gender trouble in which she talks about um, the ways that so many readers have misinterpreted her argument. And it's true. Mm -hmm. People misinterpret mm -hmm. it all the time. You know, yeah. she talks about gender and performativity and people yeah. understand um, performance as being something that we are in control of, right? It's something yeah. that that's optional. Uh, performance is a costume that mm -hmm. I take on and off. And what she is arguing is in fact, no, we, we are unconsciously um, socialized into performing gender all the time. And it's not something that, that we can fully control. Um, mm. I, I think that those misunderstandings in certain ways um, are inevitable. Um, and I think they can be productive um, if we're allowed to have the conversations about what these texts mean in open ways. Um, but I think it's something that, that authors really need to be prepared for is the fact that, you know, once you have let a text go into the world, readers are going to make of it what they make of it rather than what you wanted them to make of it. Really, I'm really sorry for this uh, derail of. Oh, that's <laughs> of okay. That's okay. It's an going, interesting question. Going away from your book, but it it was really a, 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 a complex of questions that arose uh, uh, by by reading your your book. Um, so let's uh, turn back uh, more closely to to your book. Um, you also end up uh, by proposing. Uh, the the last chapter is called the path forward, but maybe mm -hmm. it's more like several paths. You <laughs> you kind of propose um, several things for for um, saving the university, as the title says. Yes. Uh, can you can you provide an outlook on on what these paths uh, can offer? Well, you know, that's, I mean, it's a, a very interesting question. And it's been a while since I've looked closely at what I, I propose in that um, conclusion. And given Just that, propose something. Yeah, I mean, given that the book um, was published in February 2019, uh, well before COVID, um, well before all of the institutional changes that COVID has wrought on all of our, our universities, I would be hesitant to go back to any of those particular suggestions and say, mm -hmm. this is definitely the path forward. But I, what I do think that the last year and a half has demonstrated to us is that we, we, we need some serious change um, on all of our campuses in order to, uh, to manage some of the crises that we have in front of us. Um, and so You know, what, what I've been working on in the last year um, has been a follow-up 
to generous thinking. Um, you know, I, I spent a lot of time as I was um, working on generous thinking and then after the book was released, um, visiting university campuses and talking with faculty and staff and administrators and students to find out, you know, what, what was happening on their campuses and how they were um, thinking about, you know, the changing shape of scholarship in the digital age and the changing need for relationships between the campus and the communities that surround it, um, and, and so on. And all of these campuses that I visited were in, in some stage of strategic planning, right? As I think all of our institutions are in a constant strategic planning process now. Um, and they were recognizing that included among that, stri- that strategic plan needed to be thinking about the kinds of questions that I was asking in generous thinking about the relationship between the campus and the community, um, about the, the kinds of work that we value and how we demonstrate that we value it and so on. But there wasn't a lot of clarity, um, I think, among either um, there wasn't there wasn't a, a clear sense among the people that I was talking to about how to begin creating the kinds of change that they know they need. I mean that that at many institutions, it's clear that we need some new policies and we need some new organizational structures. But really, what we need is a deep culture change, a, a, a way of rethinking what it is we do and why we do it. And how to begin creating that kind of culture change, I think, is is a little bit of a mystery. We sort of stop and go, well, you know, everything, the the ways we work are so ingrained. I don't know how we're ever going to be able to change that. Or we tried to change that 15 years ago and it didn't work. So we're just going to keep doing it the way we do it. And I think that that that's, I mean, obviously it's a mistake, um, but but it's a, a a position of like feeling a kind of hopelessness um, that we really need to get beyond. So the project that I'm working on right now is really aimed at um, people on campus who want to begin to make some of that kind of cultural change, but are looking for a point of entry and are trying to figure out how to go about doing it. And the argument in this, in this project is really that we, we can start local, right? We can start with the, the, the small scale policies and processes and documents that each of us in our individual positions within the university have some kind of control over. And we can work on making those better and bring together the group of people, the you know, our colleagues who are willing to work with us on this, um, the the staff and administrators who are willing to help us make those changes and get them through, and um, so forth. We can build the coalitions that can make these small changes that can then ripple out and have effects across the institution. So the kind of thing that I'm thinking about here. Um, is, you know, in, in my own institution here at Michigan State, um, I'm a faculty member in the English department. And when I first joined the department four years ago, um, the, everything in, at Michigan State is governed by bylaws. We have bylaws for everything. Every unit has their own individual bylaws. There are bylaws at every level of the institution. And the English department was governed by a set of bylaws that seemed to me like they hadn't been reviewed since the 1980s. Um, mm-hmm. Their definitions for things like what counted as research um, were, were 
pretty dated and were quite narrow. And so, you know, we, we took a look at these, at these bylaws and our department chair at the time um, said to the voting members of the faculty, we're going to revise these things. We're going to um, work toward making them um, a, 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 a document that supports greater equity within the department, but that also supports the kinds of innovation and excitement that we believe this department should have. And so we divided up into subcommittees and we took the document apart and we spent the better part of an academic year um, really closely revising those bylaws to create the new kinds of policies and structures that we believed would help the department um, both achieve a greater kind of justice for its members, um, but also would support the new kinds of innovation in scholarly work that we wanted to see happen within the department. And it was, it was a very slow process and it took a lot of arguments and it took a lot of conversations um, and a lot of listening to one another and figuring out where the real um, obstacles were to getting this done. But once we were done, you know, we had a set of bylaws that were forward thinking and that were far more open in terms of their definitions of the kinds of work that we want to support among the faculty. They were far more open in terms of who within the department had a voice in its governance processes. Um, they were far more equitable in a whole range of kinds of ways. And that work um, has, you know, both turned into a real positive for the department itself, but then other departments within our college started seeing that we had done this and thinking that they could do this too, right? They could make their working environments better by coming together and thinking through the, the places where their own policies were hindering their ability to be the department that they really wanted to be. And I think that is, is one of the arguments of the new project is that, that what looks like a very small change, it's just a document, um, we're just revising this process, that those small changes can inspire um, larger change within an institution that can can really substantively change um, the the environment in which we all work together. That sounds like a very classical bottom up political activity mm -hmm. to me, uh, and and I I like that you you uh, you point out this out because I think for. Uh, maybe that's also a very German perspective, but many um, many readers who maybe just read the title of your book might think that this is really in contrast to each other. This uh, being generous and also and then being maybe more even more traditionally critical political action. Yes. Uh, so I really like that that you and not only in your book but also in your political practice combine these two. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. And again, I would want to argue that generosity is at the root of all of that kind of political right. action because giving your time and giving your energy to building coalitions and to creating um, the kinds of solidarity that are necessary um, to to improve the situation for all of us is an act of extraordinary mm. generosity. Mm. And uh, maybe you can 
besides these uh, almost material political um, activities, maybe you can also describe um, a, a concrete um, practice of listening together or reading together uh, in your teaching or maybe also research? Yes, absolutely. Um, so in, in my research, you know, I, I have kept a blog since 2002. Um, so it's, you know, it's quite, not, oh my goodness, it's almost 20 years old now, which is kind of crazy to think about. Um, I post on it far less frequently than I used to, but I have used it across that 20 years as a means of kind of thinking out loud, right? You know, wrestling with an idea that I think I might want to write about, but that I'm not sure that I really understand and engaging with folks who, who have ideas that can help support um, the, the improvement of my own work. And so I, I've, across the, the time that I've had this blog, I've taken the opportunity several times um, to share drafts of work, including the draft of generous thinking, um, the entire manuscript we posted online in a blog-based format um, to do a, a, a sort of open peer review. Um, and that process, I think, you know, was certainly a, a benefit to me to have more readers able to give me more feedback in a way that allowed me to see more of um, the importance of the kinds of suggestions that were being made um, to improve the manuscript. But I think it was also a benefit um, in a way to the community um, to see the process um, in action, to see, you know, among our students, for instance, that, that um, published monographs and articles don't start perfect, right? <laughs> they, they start with all, I mean, that we draft in the same ways that they do. We have all kinds of holes in the process and we have all kinds of flaws in our thinking and that we work those flaws out through the writing and revision and discussion process. And I think making more of that kind of process of our work, not just the finished result of our work public, um, is, is a benefit for, for all of us in thinking about what the role of, of scholars in contemporary culture can be. Yeah, I love this because it brings us back to the new technology and the publishing uh, um, new, um, new ways of publishing. It, it brings, uh, which you uh, started <laughs> this interview. Absolutely. So, uh, it's a perfect uh, circle. Uh, Kathleen, uh, thank you very much for joining me on the New Books Network. Okay, it has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.